All right. Thanks for being with us today. Lots to get to. Coming up in the program, we're going to talk about movement during the long weekend. It will be a long weekend for many people. But as you know, we are being advised, uh, pleaded with, recommended that we stay home and not head out, stay in your community. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that coming up on the program. As well, we're going to check in with the HealthSick First Nation about why they are turning away anybody that comes to their community, even if it's to stock up on supplies or to get some kind of shelter. They're saying it's just too dangerous and they will not be allowing people to dock in their community. We're also going to talk hunting and fishing, why there has been such an increase when it comes to hunting licenses and wild game permits in light of COVID-19. But first, something you just heard on the news, the Vancouver Park Board has announced that Stanley Park will be going car-free as of tomorrow. So let's bring in Howard Norman. He is the Director of Parks at the Vancouver Park Board. Howard, thank you so much for being with us. No, no problem. Good afternoon, Jill. Uh, so this is going to be in place tomorrow. What are people going to see that's different if they're headed to Stanley Park tomorrow? Well, they're going to see a lot more signs. They're going to be uh, greeted by some park rangers, possibly VPD at the roundabout off of Georgia Street or off of Beach Avenue uh, to redirect them uh, back out of the park, unfortunately. Um, and they will see a lot more space uh, for people that are actually in the park who have walked or cycled into the park. And so, But buses will still be in there, will they? Uh, the 19 bus will still go up to the, to the uh, loop and turn around because that's a lot more, it's a lot easier for the bus. But if uh, we find that the bus is crowded or causing an issue, then the bus can be redirected right at the roundabout. All right. So if people are still cycling or walking in the park and maintaining that distance, then will they be able to then go on the roadway? Absolutely. Uh, we're at this point only asking cyclists to use the roadway. Um, the seawall will still be open. But as you probably know, and most people know the seawall, it has some pinch points. Uh, that are definitely problematic. So we are asking cyclists to use the road. They'll have two lanes plus the parking lanes to, to ride in. Um, and I think it'll be a new adventure. I think people will, will hopefully uh, embrace that. Are you concerned, though? There has been a lot of talk of the seawall, and anybody that has been on it knows that it's impossible in many parts of it to do a two-meter distance from other people. Why not just close it down altogether so you make sure people aren't getting too close? Well, it's been a step-by-step process. You know, we originally, we shut down our playgrounds, we shut down this, with that. We didn't really want to go hard and cold right away with this. So we're, we're hoping that people use good judgment and we'll have, we have our park champions out there. We have our park rangers asking people to distance. I'm actually noticing quite a, an increase in people distancing. Um, but again, there's those choke points. So people can use the road as well. It isn't just for bikes. There's sidewalk up there. There's the, the roadway. It's an opportunity more so than taking cars out of the park. It's an opportunity to give people more space to recreate in Stanley Park, particularly the people in the West End. And for those who are caught not distancing, uh, I know we've been talking as well today about a number of warnings that have been handed out. Will people still be getting warnings or park rangers or, or I guess they'd have to call bylaw maybe? Would they be getting tickets? At, at this point, we're still in the warning phase, uh, but we are ramping up to uh, the ticketing phase if need be. And what would be that, that turning point that you would go from warnings to tickets? I think if people just have a blatant disregard. I mean, I, I use this theory that, uh, you know, 10% spoiled for 90 other, the other 90%. And we are still seeing, uh, you know, we give over 1,600 warnings since uh, March the 22nd. And those warnings, uh, you know, even though they're given as an, they're counted as an individual, often they're for a group of, you know, 4, 5, 10, 12. So a much bigger group at that point. So People just need to think about what they're doing. You know, the, the, the virus doesn't move. We move the virus. So if people keep that in mind, 
and social distance like they've been instructed to, um, it won't be an issue. If uh, we have to take a harder approach, then we'll take a harder approach. Uh, 1,600 warnings uh, since, sorry, March 22nd. Is that throughout to all Vancouver parks? Yeah, but we've been mainly focused on uh, the, the hot spots, which is the seawall, uh, Jericho, Kitsilino, uh, where, where people tend to gather historically. Those are the main spots we've been focused on. Right. The parking lots at uh, Jericho and that have been shut for uh, time seems to have all melded together, but the, it's, they've been shut for, for some time now. Uh, has That's that made a big difference in what you're seeing? Yeah, I think it's made, it's made a real difference. I mean, originally people were trying to roll the logs out of the way and just, you know, I mean, in, you know, we had to take out the, the, the poles for beach volleyball. I mean, people are habitual, right? They want to go back and do the same thing they've always done. The weather gets good, the sun comes out, people in Vancouver want to get out. What we're asking is for people to try to recreate in their own neighbourhood. We have over 230 parks in Vancouver. We have lots of walking trails, um, lots of interesting places people have maybe have never been before in their own community. Asking people to stay there and explore your neighbourhood. Um, so, yes, parking lots are closed. It's awkward. It, we don't want to jam neighbourhoods with people... Um, you know, illegally parking. So it's it's a challenge, but I think the message is getting out there. Um, and, and to talk, uh, looking at Stanley Park again as well, and in some other parks, uh, there there are homeless people living in those parks. Have they been talked to or have people checked on them to see if they're distancing or what their what their situation is? Yeah, we find most of those people are very individual, mostly stay out of out of the way. Uh, they're they're well tucked in the in the woods. But those that aren't get visited frequently by VPD Mounted Squad, um, also by our park rangers. We know the majority of them. Uh, we try to ensure that they social distance properly. I would say the majority, again, are, are individuals. Um, but it's definitely a challenge in Stanley Park to know where everybody is and what they're up to. But we're doing our best. And for people then, what message would you give? I mean, is this kind of the trial weekend in that it is going to be really nice weather? It's going to be a long weekend for a lot of people. Is this the weekend where the behavior will dictate whether or not you have to take further steps? Absolutely. I mean, the the city and the park board are monitoring this closely. We will will be having people out actually monitoring that you probably won't even know they're out there. But, you know, you can look around the world and see what other cities have had to do. We don't want to go down that road. It's a last resort. But seriously, I mean, people need to really think about this and do the right thing. So, yes, we will be monitoring. We are prepared to take the next step. But our preference, of course, is not to. Right. And one other question about garbage. Are there enough garbage cans, do you think? Because unfortunately, we're also seeing people uh, throwing face masks, gloves, things that might be contaminated on the grounds. And I'm assuming that's happening in parks as well. Yeah, that's correct. We do have a crew out that does uh, pick paper, the litter collectors um, that walk with buckets and tongs. Um, but there are quite a few totes <coughs> excuse me, on the seawall. So we're asking people to not dispose of gloves, masks, or anything else for that matter that they may have touched without putting it in the garbage can. They're spaced out, um, you know, and it, if it's in your hand, you can take it to a garbage can. It doesn't have to get immediately dropped on the ground. So please, please pick, take your trash back with you or find a garbage can. All right. Uh, Howard Norman, thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. Oh, you're welcome. Anytime. All right. Howard Norman is the Director of Parks uh, in Vancouver. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, I want to know what you are seeing in your local park, wherever you are. Well, we know we are being asked, requested, told to stay at home if possible. But as you just heard in the newscast, the weather forecast, some pretty beautiful weather on the way, some warm temperatures as well. And even with all of the warnings and people being told to stay in your community, if you do go out, there likely will still be people traveling during the Easter weekend. Let's bring in Ken Knight, Assistant to Professor Emeritus at UBC in the Geography Department. He joins us on the line now. Ken, good afternoon to you. 
And to you. Uh, what are your thoughts on this idea? And we've heard uh, from the regional district of the East Kootenai. Uh, they've sent a letter uh, to BC health officials calling on more measures to keep people at home, to stop people from moving around the province. And in that case, going to a very popular part of the province. So what do you think about this idea of, of shutting down borders within the province? I'm not sure you can shut down, you know, with with borders, but I think uh, some incentives for people not to visit those smaller places. And the difficulty is that the health uh, coverage and and ability to deal with uh, the virus once uh, once it arrives is is very limited in those small towns. And I would imagine too, it's not just, and I don't mean to, to, to make it seem less less of an issue, but it's not just the virus. If, if it's also, if somebody is traveling to these smaller communities and they have a car accident or they have other some, kind, other, some other kind of health emergency that requires attention immediately. Yeah, it basically is, is the real lack of um, healthcare facilities. And in, in a number of those places, they're using nurse practitioners who are, you know, bless their heart great but uh they aren't surgeons and and so could you though i mean could you stop it at major checkpoints i'm thinking i mean it would be a huge a huge issue or something huge if they stopped say the highway at hope only to residents of anybody that lives past that point if you're leaving metro vancouver no actually from a transportation perspective it really isn't possible the the difficulty is that you have a lot of business um you know, uh, even even people um, selling things, products, uh, products, moving trucks, etc. But also, uh, you know, the whole sort of business interaction that occurs through the province with Vancouver as the central place. Uh, it would be very, very hard on those, those communities if you sort of stopped. You know, did a did a real checkpoint at the border. Right. What about other areas? And I know there have been some closures of, uh, say, campgrounds, places where people might be going and gathering and, and places that are that uh, people often go in groups. What about shutting down kind of those recreational areas? Well, I think they can they can put limitations on them and, and uh, you know, point out numbers. Uh, you know, in the summer, you see some of these campsites and they have four or five tents and maybe 10 or 12 people associated with them. And that's that is just out of line. Right. Uh, is, would it be difficult as well when you talk about uh, the geography of the province in that even if one route was deemed only essential traffic, I mean, there are so many other roads, smaller routes, logging roads and places. If somebody's really determined to get somewhere, they can get somewhere. Yeah. You, if you look at the, uh, you know, I, I like to use the back roads uh, off and on and, and you can get virtually from any place to any place else, uh, you know, by taking a, a really indirect route. Right. Uh, would it be then even enough if people are still going to travel? I mean, would it getting the message out to, as far as, I mean, the least people can do is take everything with you, take your groceries with you, take whatever it is you need with you. So then you're not stopping at a small town grocery store. You're not, you're not, you're really limiting your contact with the community and with anybody in the community. Well, that sounds like a good suggestion. <laughs> Um, I, I mean, have we ever looked at anything like this before and 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 had this issue where we're having places that, I mean, generally, way, uh, under normal circumstances, would be probably uh, loving the people to coming into the smaller communities and helping out with uh, the economy and spending their money? Uh, have, we, have you ever seen this before in that it's quite the opposite? Well, there's been some planning done on this and, and including... 
uh, when we're looking at routes, uh, you know, in transportation, we're looking at alternative routes and the possibility of building them uh, in other places. And, uh, yeah, there was, you know, there was some speculation, but it was strictly uh, theoretical. And and even with the the provincial health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, and many people thankfully are listening to her, taking her advice, taking it to heart, and that, I mean, she's talked about the fact that the virus doesn't know any boundaries, so it's only people that can stop it from spreading. Yeah, it's, it's it, you know, in some of these small communities that, that have yet to had any contact, you, know, you kind of hope that, uh, you know, people stay away so that uh, they, they don't bring with them the virus, you know, even not expecting it, because we don't know just when it's contagious. It, you know, it could be pre uh, the sort of the, the time period that, that it really starts to show up, or it could be afterwards. And there's some speculation that it could go as long as 21 days. Right. And I would imagine, too, then people that live in the smaller communities, uh, while, while they would feel safer, I imagine. I mean, if the virus isn't there, uh, the only way it's going to spread is community spread. And somebody has to physically bring it into the community. And whether that's somebody who's coming by to visit or somebody who lives in the community who leaves and comes back, it's only going to come there if somebody somehow gets it and brings it back. Yeah, it's, you know, that that's one of the nice things about a small community is that uh, you don't have a lot of those pressures from outside. But once it arrives and you don't have the health authorities or the facilities and the, and the staff to deal with it, then you've got a real problem. All right. Uh, we will leave it there. Uh, Ken Denike, thank you so much. Uh, great to t- chat with you today. Thanks for coming on the program. Oh, you're welcome. All right, Ken Denike is an assistant professor emeritus of UBC at the UBC Geography Department. And just to note, Linda Steele is going to be speaking with Rob Gay, the chair of the Regional District of East Kootenai, the chair of the board. She's going to be talking with him after 5 p.m. And that is the region that has actually written a letter to Dr. Bonnie Henry asking that additional measures be brought in to help that region. Uh, It's a place where on a lovely long weekend, like we're about to see, you would normally see a lot of people flooding to that area to uh, just to spend a nice weekend. They are begging people not to come for fears that they would bring the virus with them. A little bit later on in this program as well, we are going to actually check in with the HealthSick First Nation. They too are saying, do not come to our community if you try and dock at our community to restock or supply or to spend time here. We are going to turn you away. And we're going to be uh, talking with Chief Counselor uh, Marilyn Slett around 1.45 this afternoon. When we come back after a short break. Let's open up the phone lines again. What do you think of this idea? Should more borders be put in place? And I realize physically it would be very difficult to do that. But if people are still planning on going on trips throughout the province, Well, we've been talking about this on the program, and it seems like during COVID-19, nothing makes people angrier than when people think the rules don't apply to them. We've heard it over and over again. We are all in this together, and we need to work together if we are going to flatten that curve, keep flattening the curve, and get rid of this virus. Well, apparently that message is not getting across to a couple that are in the Cowichan Valley. They have been flouting quarantine rules since recently returning from an international trip and it's causing a lot of stress for a lot of people and a lot of ang- a lot of anger. Uh, let's bring in North Cowichan Mayor Al Sebring to talk a little bit more about this. Mayor Sebring, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Joe. Uh, so what exactly is this couple doing or not doing? Well, 
what they're not doing is staying home the way they're supposed to, at least uh, the last we heard. Uh, we got a complaint last week, and you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of background here. You have to understand that last week the province empowered municipal bylaw enforcement personnel to go and, and deal with uh, people who are returning from foreign travel. Now, this was before the feds imposed the Quarantine Act. Um, basically, the way that works with the local bylaw enforcement people is they can go visit and just remind folks that, hey, you know what, you've just returned from foreign travel, please quarantine yourself for two weeks. In this particular instance, these these people essentially said no. Uh, they thumbed their nose at it. And the reality is that while the province has asked our bylaw enforcement people to participate in the enforcement, we are not empowered to write any tickets or do any detention or anything like that. It's basically a, uh, a visit that says, please don't do this. If there are repeat um, offenders or people who uh, want to be defiant, our instructions municipally are to kick that upstairs to the uh, provincial health office, in this case, Island Health, and uh, we're told they'll deal with it. What we have subsequently found out is that as of uh, a couple of days ago, they don't really have a protocol in place to deal with it. So and I understand the province is working on it. It's interesting. I Just before I took the phone call from you, I have an email from my local uh, medical health officer here in the Cowichan Valley who says, oh, we need to connect about this couple that's not distancing, and I haven't been able to connect with it. I was hoping to have a complete update for you here, but I just read that email at about uh, three minutes to one o'clock, so I didn't have time to connect with her. But if the email rolls in during the interview, I'll let you know, because I quickly popped yeah. her back one and said, let me know, I'm, I'm going on the air. <laughs> yeah, please do, please. So we would happily yeah. bring that breaking news uh, to people. Yeah. Uh, are, are this couple then, are they leaving the house? Are they going grocery shopping? What are they doing? You know, I don't really know the particulars. I mean, I'm, I'm the mayor. I'm not the bylaw enforcement guy. I don't get that far down into the weeds. But I, I do know that our bylaw enforcement people, when they did the visit last week, were told uh, essentially, no, we're not going to we're not going to self-isolate. We need to go shopping. We need to do this, that, and the other thing. And the other complication here that I found out yesterday is that these folks actually returned after the feds imposed the National Quarantine Act which makes it a whole different scenario now because that quarantine act is enforceable by the RCMP and Canadian Border Services. And uh, the RCMP is aware, and I can only presume they're working with the CBSA. And, I mean, they're still working out protocols as well, as we heard yesterday from Bonnie Henry. But uh, at the end of the day, I think, you know, something probably will happen. Right. And and you might not know this because it's a whole new changing landscape. But uh, I mean, a lot of people are hearing this and probably thinking, well, call the RCMP, just get the RCMP to go and either find them or whatever law enforcement can do. But do you know, would the RCMP have to actually catch them outside of their house? I don't know those particulars. I do know that I, I spoke with the detachment commander, the officer in charge here of our detachment. And he says, yes, we have a protocol in place. But the protocol is being driven by E-Division in Vancouver. So the way I understand it, they, um, when they have a situation like this, they report up the line to E-Division and then wait for instructions to come back down in terms of what to do next. And I haven't, like I said, gone that far down into the weeds to see what that looks like. But I know that, you know, E-Division is involved and the CBSA is involved as well. And there's an important, there's another important factor here that, that we have to remember. These are a very, very small minority of people. I mean, you know, 90, 95% of people do it, just do what they do the right thing, do what they're told. I don't want to make that sound negative, but you know, they get it. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's 5% that for whatever reason don't get it. And of that 5%, you know, most of those 
if they get a knock at the door from our bylaw enforcement officers saying, please don't do this, they happily comply. So, you know, it's 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 half of that 5% that, that wants to be defiant. They kind of wreck it for everybody, and then this is getting all the media attention, but but really, fundamentally, people are, are doing a good job behaving themselves. Well, you're absolutely right. And it ta- all it takes is one couple or one person like this. Uh, so if they oh, got back on, on the 25th, their quarantine would effectively end tomorrow, uh, if I'm doing the math correctly. Uh, uh, that would be two weeks. No. I think. No, the 20, the, the, uh, yeah, I guess that's right. Yeah. Um, so then they would be free to go. But, I mean, it's got to be frustrating, and I would imagine for their neighbors and residents there, too, to see people get away with this and flout the law and the rules while everybody else is doing their part. Well, this is it. I mean, I'm, you know, social media is lit up pretty good about this one here in the couch. You know, people want to know, you know, who are these people? Where do they live? A, I don't even know that because, again, I'm not the bylaw guy. But, you know, I mean, what are you going to do? Vigilante action? You know, some of the suggestions have been, well, we'll just take six cars and block in their driveway and they can't go anywhere. Uh, as mayor, I can't support that. But at the same time, it kind of makes me smile when I read stuff like that. So I don't know. Well, absolutely. I'm surprised. And like you said, they're they're not being publicly uh, outed their names in the media reports, but clearly people know who they are and have seen pictures and on social media. I'm surprised there hasn't been perhaps more of an uproar or more of a, a response from the, the people that live on their street. Well, you know, be, be careful with those pictures on social media. One of those pictures on social media was identified as, as one of the members of, the, of that family was actually one of our law enforcement officers, and people were going to go after him. It's like, no, hang on a minute. So, <laughs> yeah. um, For the most part, uh, how are things doing, though, in, in, in your community? And that we've been talking about smaller communities, making sure that the healthcare teams are in place, and uh, this, this concern, this real concern heading into the Easter weekend, while it's going to be a nice weekend, uh, concern that people are still going to travel when really they're not supposed to. Well, you know, we're on the island, so non-essential travel off the rock is pretty much not possible now with BC Ferry, so that makes that a little bit easier. Uh, generally speaking, how we do it in community, I'm, I'm always amazed at this community, generally the Carson Valley. I mean, people step up. You know, last week I I had a, a grocery wholesaler call me up, and uh, end of the day I connected him with some folks, and, and he donated two pallets of frozen meat anonymously. Yeah. Somebody else called me up and said, oh, I dug through a warehouse and don't ask me where I got them or why I have them because I don't even know, but I got 2,000 surgical masks. Who do I give them to? And again, anonymous donations. So, you know, there's great community spirit involved here. Most folks are really uh, into it and and, and cooperating and, and working with each other. I mean, we have a, uh, I live in Shimanis and we've got a grocery store down here that they offer home delivery, and pre-COVID, they were doing five or six deliveries a day. Now they're doing 100, just because, you know, so many folks are self-isolating for whatever reason. And they've got volunteers in there who are um, packing those groceries, you know, p- picking the shelves and packing those groceries every day because they don't even have enough staff to do it. Last week, they said to those volunteers, you know, we really appreciate what you're doing. Here's a $50 gift card to our grocery store. Most of those volunteers turned around and went to local community agencies and say, here's a gift card, you know, give it to somebody who really needs it. So there's there's really good stories coming out of this as well. Absolutely. Uh, just one more point on the couple. Do you wish that there was there was a better, the, the, the rules were already in place, that having dealt with this, maybe police, RCMP could have just gone to the door and dealt with it or, or could, have, could have been faster doing that? Well, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, and you know, this is this whole thing has been drinking from a fire hose, and and sometimes 
we, we, and by we, I mean governments generally, we tend to get a little bit ahead of ourselves and say, you know, this is how, this is what we want people to do. We haven't quite figured out how to, how to do the nuts and bolts of the enforcement. I'm sure it'll catch up. I mean, both Bonnie Henry and, and Minister Dix talked about it yesterday, and I'm probably expecting another update on it today. In fact, like I said, I may be getting one here from Island Health any minute. So, you know, um, I mean, generally, I've been very, very pleased with the way the province has handled this whole thing. Their, their cooperation with municipalities has been awesome. We're getting weekly conference calls with the minister, and uh, they're staying on top of it. So this is just one of those things that fell through the cracks. And, yeah, hindsight, we could have done it better, but we're working on it. All right. We'll leave it there. Uh, Mayor Sebring, thank, oh, thank you so much for being with us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. With us. So, well, this is an interesting story. The number of hunting licenses and fishing licenses expected to go way up, be much higher than we've seen in previous years because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And joining me to talk a bit more about this is Jesse Zeman, spokesperson with the BC Wildlife Federation. Jesse, thanks so much for being with us. Afternoon. Thanks for having me. Uh, so we're already seeing hunting permits, that uh, there's an uptick in hunting permits. So is this people who have been regular hunters and are thinking that during a pandemic, best place to go is into the wilderness, into the wild and continue hunting? Or do you think this is new hunters? Uh, I, I think there's probably a few things. Uh, part of it is people want to be prepared for, you know, when things change or hopefully change around COVID and they can get in the outdoors. They want to make sure they have things ordered ahead of time uh, for other people uh, hunting season does open in April so for them they'll be able to like, go outside uh, practice social distancing and go out and enjoy the outdoors and you know there definitely is a movement uh, aloft uh, with regards to food security and you know looking at bare shelves and grocery stores is uh, a little bit scary for some folks I think and the idea of having uh, organic wild game in their freezer all year long is kind of a, a comforting thought. And are you surprised by the numbers, the numbers I'm looking at, that the number of hunting licenses sold to British Columbians has more than doubled already this year compared to looking back at previous years? Yeah, it's it's been really surprising. And, and like you said, yeah, some of these numbers have tripled in the first three months of the year. And um, I guess when things over time, as they shake out, we'll really know. I think part of it is people are really just trying to get prepared. And, and also in the springtime, uh, hunting season is open. People are, have a lot of spare time on their hands. And really, they're just looking to go out, enjoy nature a little bit. And uh, yeah, practice uh, responsible self uh physical distancing, I guess. <laughs> uh, and are you seeing a difference in, uh, so like whitetail deer, mule deer, the permits to harvest those are up. Uh, that's different, isn't it? In that some other hunts, it's a bit of a lottery or limited lottery, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, a number of the species and hunts across the province is spending on the uh, population trajectory of the wildlife. A lot of them are limited entry hunts. So you have to put your name into uh, into a lottery and then you hope you get drawn. And we won't know fully how that works until May or June once we have those results. A lot of the um, hunting licenses and permits that people are buying are for um, the more uh, open uh, hunts where you can buy a, a tag over the counter and go hunting. And that would be things like black bears, again, those those types of deer. What else would people be buying them for? Uh, yeah, so it's typically black bears, deer, moose in the more remote parts of the province. Um, Rocky Mountain elk as well is going to be a big one. Um, kind of the, the mainstay of that meat and potato species typically um, are where we're going to see people, uh, you know, kind of get attracted to. And what about things like wolves that you wouldn't normally eat, but uh, hunters still go out and get them? Yeah, it's hard to say for a lot of that stuff. Things like wolves and other predators, that's, 
that typically happens in the winter. Um, so we won't know. There's a long, a long uh, lead time for that. Um, I think the best indicator right now is around blackberries because, of course, they open in April. Um, there's a lot of them in BC, and they also make great table fare. So I think that's the biggest indicator. And we've definitely seen, you know, we've gone from 1,500 uh, tags sold at this time in 2017 to 4,800 this year so far. So I think that's where people are, uh, you know, looking at that going. This is a great opportunity. And in BC, we don't uh, typically hunt black rares as much as they do, or the hunters don't in other jurisdictions. And I think people are looking at that going, this is a really great opportunity to enjoy the outdoors and get some good meat. Uh, that's a huge increase, 1,500 to 4,800. And I guess, are there any concerns about the size or the population? Uh, with black bears, no. I think the provincial estimate is probably 120 to 160 thousand black bears. So definitely no concern. The species of concern or areas of concern are a lot of those species that we talked about earlier, where they're already on a lottery hunt. So we control how many people go out and hunt and how many people harvest wildlife. Um, so most of the species where there is or could be concerned, those are already significantly regulated. And what about fishing? I understand uh, we're seeing an increase or expecting there will be an increase in fishing licenses as well. Yeah, um, we haven't quite seen it yet. I think in the last couple of weeks, it's, it's, there's been an uptick. But I mean, uh, a lot of the lakes are going to start to come. The ice is going to start to come off. And for people who want to go out and uh, enjoy some iPhone-free time and enjoy some time with their kids and get connected to nature and maybe catch dinner, I think we're going to see a, you know, a bunch of people take up fishing this spring. And fishing, I think, seems a little bit more uh, something that if you've never done it before, it's probably an easier one to ease into or to take up than hunting, where you are supposed to, you have to take a course. Um, there are regulations when it comes to guns. Are you concerned at all that, that we're in this unprecedented time that there would be an increase in illegal hunting? Yeah, so illegal hunting we call poaching. It's kind of the you know the difference between somebody driving a car and somebody driving a car under the influence. And poaching is definitely something that, uh, especially when the economy kind of goes sideways, that we could experience. And that's where you know the the legal, the licensed hunters and anglers are quite often the ears and eyes for the conservation officer service. And so everybody works together to try to. Uh, Make sure that there's social awareness that poaching, illegal hunting is is not uh, not okay. Right. And do you think is there enough enforcement out there? Uh, like you said, it's it's a lot of time. It's the the hunters and that that are doing it legally. But is there enough enforcement to make sure that that is that it's that's not the poaching doesn't take off? Yeah. Well, that's a really good question. BC historically has been one of the most underfunded natural resource agencies, including our conservation officer service, for really for decades. And so the answer uh, in a roundabout way is no. Um, we do have some tools to help support the Conservation Officer Service. The BC Wildlife Federation a couple of years ago downloaded an app which allows you to report environmental infractions on your phone. It's called the BCWF Conservation App. Um, but uh, definitely BC, by and large, could use a lot more investment in natural resource management, so air, water, trees, but also in particular fish and wildlife. Uh, we've We've really starved our uh, our biologists and our conservation officers' budgets over the last probably three or four decades. Mm, interesting. Um, one final note uh, for people: if this is kind of reigniting a passion people might have had for hunting uh, that haven't been into these remote parts of the province in quite some time, what advice do you have for people that might be taking it up again? Yeah, I think you know right now in the era of COVID. You know, we want to really make sure that we don't have a few people go out and ruin it for everybody. So what that means is, 
you know, we don't want people traveling across the province and going into remote communities. A number of these small communities are not going to be able to handle any kind of issue related to COVID. So things like blackberries and rainbow trout occur in everyone's backyards, and that's where we want people to to stick to. Um, we definitely don't want to see a bunch of people not following the rules and then have hunting and fishing closed. So I think that's the big one. Underneath that, there's a number of online tools and supplementary info um, around the Conservation Outdoor Recreation and Education Program. And just make sure that, uh, you know, you're prepared, you're safe, people know where you're going. And the biggest thing about the outdoors is make sure you go out and enjoy it. All right. Good advice. Jesse, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate your time. All right, we've been talking about the nice weather that is coming, the order, the recommendation, the plea for people to stay home, particularly this long weekend. We were also talking about smaller communities earlier on in the program, and the Health Sick Nation would like people to absolutely stay away from their community because of fears of an outbreak and what that could do to the people living in Bella Bella. Joining me on the line to talk more about this is Chief Counselor Marilyn Slett. Uh, Chief Counselor Slett, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. I, I know you've already had some instances where people have tried to stop, whether it's getting supplies or to access the area. What have you had to tell people? Well, we, we have a bylaw that we have uh, enacted under our self-government, under our way laws. And uh, we've let them know that uh, we're not permitting um, non-essential visitors to visit our community at this time. So we do have guardians that are monitoring our waters and we have stop orders, you know, that have been put up at our entry points in the community and our surrounding communities here. We've been working with um, the residents of Denny Island. And, you know, it really does come from a place of uh, limited uh, resources and capacity for um, health services in our community and just trying to keep our community safe. And now you, the, the health sook issued the bylaw, I, I believe, was it March 27th? Have you had many people trying to come there and visit since then? So there, there's been some activity on the weekend, uh, definitely with some sailboats that were en route to Alaska and, you know, others, you know, from the island that are, you know, around the community. So we've been monitoring the traffic as well with, um, you know, the, the different uh, monitoring of marine vessel traffic and, you know, there, there is a lot of traffic and we're, you know, really just trying to get that message out there for, for people that, you know, we know that uh, people do like to come out to, you know, our uh, waterways, you know, during the uh, summer months. But really right now is not really the uh, appropriate time to be visiting. We've got, you know, elders in our community that we're trying to um you know, keep safe from uh, COVID-19 and, you know, limited resources here. So it's out of, you know, a place for, you know, certainly everyone to to be safe, including, you know, people traveling, you know, right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, What has the response been when you've told people that have tried to maybe come and get supplies or tried to dock uh, in that area? What has the response been when you've said, no, please don't come here? You know, most people, you know, are responsive and and understand. And we understand people have, you know, certainly basic needs. So, you know, I know our neighboring community provided, um, you know, the delivery of groceries, you know, to their vessels and and that sort of thing. So, you know, like I said, it's really coming from a place of, you know, um, well-being for everybody. And, 
you know, people traveling right now, you know, during this time, you know, there are several community orders, you know, in place around the coast that, you know, people, you know, aren't really um, permitting non-essential visitors to their community. So, you know, I, I think travel will be much more difficult for people. And they need to recognize that before they even, you know, make any decisions to go out and travel during this, you know, current you know, a pandemic that we're all trying to, to deal with at different community levels. Uh, has there been anybody, uh, do you have any cases of COVID-19 in, in the health sick nation? No, we don't. And, uh, you know, and then that's one of the reasons why we really want to maintain and mitigate any threats or of COVID into our community. So, you know, we certainly do have experience with different um, pandemics that have you know, devastated our populations, you know, and it wasn't that long ago with the influenza pandemic, smallpox, Spanish flu, you know, we we lost, you know, families, um, you know, and, you know, thousands of people during, you know, those times. So, so for us, it's, you know, much more, it hits home, you know, we really know that we need to be proactive in, in our approach to protecting our community. And for anybody that maybe is hearing this and, and not getting why this is so important for you and for your community, what is it like if somebody was to get sick, even even without COVID-19, but for somebody that, that needs hospital care or, or needed even more so to be airlifted, what would the response be like? What are the resources like there? Definitely. So we do have a hospital here and, you know, they, um, you know, they, provide medical care for everybody traveling through and that needs it, uh, but it is limited. And, you know, if they required, um, you know, acute care, critical care, they would be airlifted from Bella Bella to Vancouver and it's, you know, up to an hour and a half, you know, flight. Uh, and it's also weather dependent, you know, weather always plays a role in, in that. And, you know, it's, um, they, service many communities, not just Bella Bella. So it's rural and remote communities. So, you know, it's, um, you know, it depends on a lot of factors, you know, to be able to get people out, you know, and, and make sure that they're, you know, getting the care that they need. And at this point, is BC Ferries still stopping in Bella Bella? They are. Um, they haven't uh, adjusted their um, their schedules. Um, I do believe that they've put some measures into place around uh, essential travel. And, you know, we certainly recognize and, and support essential travel into our community. We have, like I said, the hospital and, and a health center in our community. And we have mission critical staff with, you know, um, nurses and doctors and other people that are providing care in our community. So we always want to, you know, certainly support their um travel and their stays in our community. And it sounds like these are all measures that are, are going to help, hopefully, in keeping this virus from ever getting to that area. But if it does, do you also have contingency plans, medical plans in place? So certainly the, um, the hospital has a transport uh, plan that they are uh, formulating in terms of getting uh, patients out of the community. Um, And we also, as a community EOC, have a secondary site that we're preparing in terms of a surge protocol uh, should an overflow uh, situation happen here.
All right. We will leave it there. Uh, Chief Counselor Slat, uh, good to talk to you. And uh, thank you so much for joining us and explaining the measures and why they're needed to keep everyone safe. Uh, appreciate your time today. Thank you for having me. All right. Uh, Marilyn Slat is the Chief Counselor of the Health Sick Nation. They have put up a big sign for anybody that uh, perhaps is heading out on a sailboat or a bigger boat. Uh, if you're thinking of stopping in these smaller communities, whether it's to stock up, get supplies, uh, many, not just uh, Chief Counselor Slat, many others are saying, oh, hold on a second, for the safety of everybody, maybe a better idea not to do that. Please don't. And instead, bring those supplies with you. Thanks for being with us. Well, for the next half hour, we're going to talk about COVID-19 and the impact on the Metro Vancouver real estate market because there have been some changes, some very noticeable changes when it comes to real estate. And I'm being, I've been getting a lot of questions. So in a few moments, we're going to open up the phone lines as well. Uh, but first, let's bring on my guest, John Carlson. He is with 2% West Coast Realty and joins us on the line. Thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, so first off, has anything closed or because of what's happening with COVID-19, is there any part of the real estate process that people can no longer do or complete? No, that was my concern a number of weeks back that, uh, you know, we might have a shutdown. But the shelter industry, which includes uh, real estate agents and uh, lawyers, notaries, property managers, that sort of thing, we've been declared an essential service. So as long as we follow the, um, the social distancing guidelines, we are permitted to continue working. Now, there are some changes, but we're still in business. All right. So how do you, how, what has changed then as far as continuing to do that type of business and having to be physically distanced? Well, I mean, in our industry, it's very much a people industry. So contact with others is, is a big part of it. Uh, part of the social distancing measures uh, regarding real estate have to do with, you know, first of all, explaining to people the situation if they're not already aware and uh, trying to uh, limit or avoid personal contact wherever possible. In our business, you know, a lot of things can be done over the phone, uh, over computers. Uh, there's paperless transactions. There's all kinds of advising and discussions that can happen without actually meeting people. Uh, but when the time comes and, uh, you know, it is necessary to maybe take a look at a house or show a property, uh, there are, of course, guidelines that we're following to make sure that, you know, first and foremost, we keep our clients safe, our families safe, and the community safe. Uh, because one of the first things that seemed to, to change was open houses and viewings going to appointment only. Yes, there was, uh, you know, quite a buzz uh, for a while where when this issue became widely known and, and there were some open houses advertised, uh, you know, the real estate board does not really have the power to outright ban uh, an open house because, you know, the listing agreement is an agreement between an agent and the client. But uh, for all intents and purposes, open houses are pretty much dead because they don't make a lot of sense and they just, uh, you know, involve too much risk. And I wonder, too, has that actually made it in that open houses, oftentimes there are a lot of uh, looky-loos, people that maybe aren't seriously considering they want to see a neighbor's place or they're just interested in seeing a place. Has it made it so the people who are now making appointments and going to look at properties are all serious buyers? Yes, that definitely is, you know, part of the intention. Um, you know, as agents, we've always had a duty to try to screen uh, potential viewers of, of our properties and, and make sure, first of all, that they're qualified and maybe weed out any, um, any objections or any insufficiencies that might lead someone to say, no, this property is not for me. But especially now, um, you know, it's very important for us to, um, to try to make sure that we're dealing with uh, the right kind of clients when it comes to viewings. I like to think of, you know, there's two different kinds. There's the discretionary type buyers or sellers who are thinking, you know, maybe we'll enter the market, but we don't have to. But then there are those that are really committed. Maybe they've sold a house or maybe there's a transfer or, 
you know, another reason that makes it very necessary for them to potentially take a look at properties and write an offer on a property. So we're always screening. But right now, I mean, I'm finding when I make a request for a viewing, and I'm not getting that many, um, but that some sellers are asking to, uh, you know, for questionnaires. Have your clients been out of the country in 14 days? Or have they shown any signs of illness? Or is anyone in their household ill? I've even had requests where um, a potential seller has asked to see a, a letter from the lender saying that these people are qualified. So mm-hmm. it makes sense. I think everyone is in protective mode right now. And uh, yeah, there are extra questions and extra screening that has to happen. And quite frankly, I would discourage anyone who is, uh, you know, more in line of a tire kicker kind of thing, looking at properties until this whole thing settles over. But there are serious buyers out there that, that need to have access to properties. And uh, for those people, we usually try to, you know, FaceTime or uh, three-dimensional tours. And it's nice to try to show a property to someone online before they even step in the door. But when they come in the door, we're being very cautious. I ask sellers to leave lights on. Uh, I don't want uh, us to be touching, you know, thing more than we have to. Um, we wear gloves and masks and, um, you know, make sure that we're doing everything in accordance with the guidelines. And, and I was even hearing of places, because you're right, some people were questioning why is this an essential service, but you're right, to given, especially at, in the beginning when these rules started coming in and the state of emergency was declared, uh, there were people that have sold properties that uh, still need to buy a new home and uh, were planning on doing that. Um, I'm hearing from people, though, even little things like you leave every light on in your house before you go out, you'd make it so when somebody does view your property, they don't actually have to touch anything. That's, that's exactly right. There's no point in having, uh, you know, before as an agent, I would get the message, hey, you know, turn on the lights when you get there, turn them all off, except this one, leave the front one on. Nowadays, you know, I, I make sure to broach this subject if the other party doesn't, that, hey, please leave the lights on. I can have access with the key. I'll wipe down the key when I'm finished. I'll wipe down the doorknob. But I don't want to be turning on and off lights and making a difficult job for the seller once we get home. Uh, once they get home to, you know, have to wipe everything down. So, yeah, minimizing risk is is the name of the game right now. Uh, What about other services that come into place as far as uh, getting a home inspector and other jobs that uh, that are needed in that I'm hearing that some inspectors are still working, some are choosing not to work. Uh, What are you seeing them seeing there? Just like any other industry, you're absolutely right. Inspectors, um, some of them are just saying, hey, I'm not I'm not working right now. Um, I recently worked with some clients who sold in Abbotsford and bought a house in Mission, and their inspector was okay, but his requirement was that, hey, I will only look at vacant properties. I don't want to go into a house where, uh, you know, somebody is currently residing, So, and I understand that. Others are a little bit more open to uh, going into a house that is occupied, but generally what I request is, you know, hey, maybe an hour or two prior to the viewing, could you maybe leave the property um, I might get there early with permission and open up the doors and air things out a little bit to make sure that, you know, we're as safe as we possibly can be. But um, inspectors, like all of us, are, are concerned about uh, staying healthy and flattening the curve. Lawyers as well. That's another, you know, lawyers or notaries. Uh, as, a, as a real estate agent, I can write a contract and take a deposit, but I cannot execute that contract. It has to go to a lawyer or a notary. And one of the other big changes in the industry is that uh, um, it has now become allowable for, um, for lawyers to um, not meet the client in order to work with the land title office and convey title. Uh, nowadays, um, and this is relatively recent within, say, the last, last few weeks, uh, the Land Title and Survey Authority is now allowing remote witnessing of affidavits for land title applications. So you don't necessarily need to step in the door of a lawyer's office 
to uh, complete a transaction anymore. So there's another change that's uh, helping us continue working safely. We are continuing. My guest is John Carlson. He is with 2% West Coast Realty, and John has agreed to stay with us to the bottom of the hour. If you have any real estate questions, as real estate transactions are continuing, I wouldn't say as normal. Nothing is as normal right now, but they are still continuing with some changes. So if you have a question, by all means, give us a call, star 9898 on your cell phone, 604-280-9898 or 1-877-399-9898. And let's go. We do have a caller on the line. Let's go to Tim. Tim, do you have a question about real estate? Uh, yeah. Um, you'll direct it if, I, if it's irrelevant. And it has to do with this. The uh, Professor Croydon that your colleague talked about mentioned about the national housing strategy that this country used to have. I remember it. And then, of course, it got cut. Very quickly, I'd like to know your guest's opinion whether the real estate industry would support a bringing back of the national housing strategy. Thank you. All well, right. Uh, yeah, referring, I think that was uh, Professor Patrick Condon, who uh, we uh, had some clips of him earlier on in the program. Uh, John, what are your thoughts on that? You know, I don't have any particular insights on that, unfortunately, Tim, but um, if you'd like to leave your contact info uh, with me, I can follow up with you after the program. All right, uh, Tim has uh, disconnected. Hopefully uh, he heard that. He can always give us a call back if he would like. Um, John, what about the numbers as far as uh, housing sales and numbers? So where are we? I know there's been some comparison looking at even in the last month uh, compared to this time last year or the year before. It's just rapid change like everything else, Jill. Um, You know, towards the end of last year, we were enjoying a time in the market where confidence had come back and uh, the market was really on the upswing. In uh, you know February and the first week or two of March, the numbers were very strong compared to the year previous, um, and I knew that uh, there was a lot of new listings about to hit the market. But um, I would suggest that uh, the numbers in the second half of March and the numbers that we're going to look at in April are going to be um, completely different. Um, I do a lot of social networking with other agents, and I follow the sales in the greater Vancouver and Fraser Valley areas. And it seems to me that uh, you know there are still sales happening. Um, kind of one-offs, hit and miss here and there. But uh, when I look back, it looks like the sales really dropped off about two weeks ago. Um, And when I look at any particular segment uh, in terms of what is actually selling on the market, there are very few sales uh, since, say, around March 20th or March 25th. I think that we're going to continue with that slow period where a lot of people who may be concerned about their employment or their health, or they're just not sure if it's the right time to enter the market, those buyers are going to sit back and wait and see what happens. Uh, which makes sense uh, completely. What do you think that's going to do to prices? Well, I think that prices, uh, right now we're in a pause situation, so I, I don't necessarily know that prices have dropped yet, but I think that it's, it's inevitable that prices will be reduced in our area. Uh, you know, this is a supply and demand industry. If you look at the employment figures uh, right now I, and, and what's projected to happen, it's probably going to be the highest unemployment uh, rate in a generation. Uh, I also know that the, the banks are starting to hedge their bets a little bit, so the interest rates are popping up a little bit to maybe um, protect them from any future bankruptcies or foreclosures. So um, my feeling is, you know, had you asked me this a month ago, a month and a half ago, I would have said, you know what, we're primed for a comeback in the market. Prices are on the way up. The su- supply and demand uh, figures show that you know we're, we're moving upward. But right now, like everybody else, I'm waiting to see what happens and what the economic fallout is going to be. But I don't see a scenario uh, in the near future where prices are going to, to go up. In fact, I think they're a little bit vulnerable, and we're going to have to wait and see what happens. 
All right. Uh, got an email from a listener. Susan writes, I'd be interested to know if these new measures brought in so things can be done online rather than going into the lawyer's office. So we'll continue once things are back to normal. And I think that's a question that, that a lot of people have, whether it's insuring your car, getting uh, your car insurance renewal, or doing these things as far as lawyers' visits, uh, the, the visits that generally have been done in person. Uh, do you think there's a chance that will continue? You know, Susan's question is very good. Um, there's always a chance that things will continue because I think on the one hand, if we look at the, the, the intensity of the change that we're facing right now, I think it makes sense that, you know, maybe we'll never go back to quite the same situation that we were at before. Um, but I also believe that, um, you know, lawyers and notaries uh, have, a, have a legal obligation to make sure they're properly identifying people. And I, I have to think that they would prefer to meet clients face-to-face so these changes have been, you know, as you mentioned, um, they're, they're quite recent. And the situation that we're facing in so many ways continues to evolve. So I don't know how if they will be permanent, but I would suggest that we're probably leaning towards an era where, you know, and we've been on this trend for years, where more and more will happen online and remotely. And I, once again, I think it remains to be seen. But that's a great question that uh, Susan asked. And what would your advice be to somebody that was considering, say, even a month ago, they were considering listing their place. Uh, they're still thinking about it, knowing that uh, everything is still happening, albeit a bit differently. What is your advice to people in that scenario? Well, I'd have to know the situation, of course. And once again, I'm going to go back to the two different kinds of potential clients right now. There's the, um, you know, the maybe say, hey, I could do this, I'm discretionary. And then there's the committed people. If you're committed and you need to uh, you know, buy or sell a property, it can still be done. And I would talk uh, very specifically and very carefully to a potential client like that and make sure he or she understands the environment that we're in and some of the risks, because there are some risks that are very particular to this, to this crisis. Um, on the other hand, if it was what I would call a discretionary uh, potential buyer seller, you know, I think the best thing to do might be to stay out of the market for now, uh, wait and see how things play out. Again, there's, there's employment risks, financing risks, there's health risks. And for someone who doesn't need to be in the market right now, this is just my opinion, just like if you don't need to be in the grocery store, uh, you know, stay home. That's my thought. All right. And do you anticipate there'll be any more changes? Like you said, it was deemed an essential service. Are you thinking that could change? Well, I'm not thinking that right now, uh, again, because people do need a place, uh, you know, to live. And, uh, you know, property managers, for instance, I mean, uh, you know, I've got a friend uh, at Profile Properties. I was just speaking to him this morning. His name's Mark Guitar, good, good guy. And, you know, they're facing challenges where, you know, tenants are looking for properties and some landlords are, are kind of hesitant to even open up their properties for people to see and vice versa. So uh, in terms of the real estate business itself, I don't see, you know, that status changing unless we were to reach a drastic situation where everybody was on lockdown. Um, There's a reason that it's an essential service. It doesn't mean we're important people. It just means that the business that we do is necessary for enough people that we need to continue doing it in the most careful way that we can. All right. We'll leave it there. John, thanks so much. Good to chat with you. Thank you very much. John Carlson is with 2% to West Coast Realty. If you thought of a question or you didn't get it through, you want to send me an email, uh, by all means, uh, still do. You can still do that, jill at cknw.com. Thanks for being with us. Well, many people are going out of their way to distance, to stay away from others, as we've been told by our provincial health officers, to keep others safe and also to keep ourselves from getting sick. And it really has turned into a scenario, I think, for a lot of people where even if you sniffle or you have a slight cough, maybe a tickle in your throat, the immediate response is, oh, no. 
I hope I haven't got the virus. I hope I wasn't exposed to it. Have I exposed others? It can lead to a lot of anxiety. And adding to that, if it's hay fever season, that makes it even worse. But there is a big difference between the two symptoms or the symptoms for the two between a hay fever and something much more serious. So my next guest is here to talk about that. Daniel Coates with uh, the director with Aerobiology Research Laboratories. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Uh, Are you hearing from or would this be the time of year where people with hay fever and allergies would be having those symptoms? Absolutely. Uh, We are now in uh, hay fever season across Canada. Uh, In your region specifically, it it started uh, late January, early February with cedar. Uh, But now we're seeing a lot more of the typical trees in the air. So allergy sufferers are definitely starting to see the symptoms. And uh, there's quite a bit of crossover with the the COVID-19 virus. But there's some that are more specific to allergies. So what what exactly are the allergies? Is it the, the pollen getting into your system and your response to that? Or what is actually happening? That's right. It's an overreaction by your immune system. So it's uh, trying to fight the allergies, but in in turn actually makes you allergic and and gives you these symptoms of runny nose and dry coughs and headaches and things like that. And what should people look for then, the the key differences between symptoms of allergies? And I would think people who have allergies probably have had them before. So hopefully they would know that, oh, this is, I've had this last year or the year before, and and this is very similar, uh, very familiar. Uh, But what what would be the differences between allergies or somebody who has this new coronavirus? Sure. Um, Allergy sufferers typically do know what their their symptoms look like, but uh, over 60% of people don't know what they're actually allergic to. So a lot of people might be experiencing the symptoms and say, I might be allergic to some, but I'm not quite sure. So they might end up in more of a panic. The typical allergy symptoms are runny nose, sneezing, uh, shortness of breath, which some people experience with the COVID virus too, uh, a dry cough, sometimes rashes and headaches. A lot of people with allergies suffer from fatigue. They get itchy, watery eyes, itchy nose, ears, and throat. Uh, So those are typical symptoms of allergies. The major, major difference that people are going to notice between allergy symptoms and the COVID symptoms is fever. Um, People with hay fever or allergies, seasonal pollen allergies, usually don't suffer any sort of fever-like symptom. And that is one that is very common with the COVID-19 virus. And you mentioned cedar and that that's uh, the cedar allergies right now and that people often know they're allergic, but maybe don't know what they're allergic to. Uh, So what else is is prominent in Vancouver and in Metro Vancouver? Yeah, for sure. Um, What's actually coming up right now is there's going to be a lot of birch in the air. Um, Cedar's still there in Vancouver, but it's going to tailor off at the end of this week. But what we're seeing is uh, more of the typical trees like uh, alder, um, uh, ash, uh, beaches coming up, willows coming up, poplar, um, hemlocks, all of these are, depending on the person, can be co- quite allergenic and uh, more and more are popping up as the season draws on. And does it matter what specifically you are allergic to when you're trying to figure out a treatment or to, to, to stabilize it or to live with it? Uh, well, it's We'll always tell you that it's best to know what you're allergic to. That way you can take the best um, um, uh, actions to minimize the um, seasonal allergies on your your health. 
but for those that don't know, it, we highly recommend going to your allergist, finding out what you're allergic to, or even maybe uh, downloading our Allergy Suffers app to track your symptoms and then take that to an allergist and, and they can do the testing. But for people with allergies, you know, you're going to see a lot of crossover with the COVID symptoms. So we'll always recommend that you uh, you get tested and know exactly what's out there uh, and and stay indoors. That's a, that's a great one for anybody suffering from COVID or from allergies. Right. And, and I would imagine people with allergies have been doing that for years or when things get really bad, staying inside to try and, and, and deal with that. Um, is there a big difference if you're allergic to pollen? Or are you also allergic to the spores that are in the air? Or is there a huge difference in how people respond to those? Uh, well, not necessarily the response. However, allergies is a very personal thing. So some people could be highly allergenic to cedar or some people might be mildly allergenic to it. Uh, it depends definitely on the person themselves, what they're going to be allergic to and how severe um, their allergy symptoms will affect them. Uh, some people some people that don't consider themselves allergic to anything when on certain very, very high days might feel that stuffiness, that dry cough, um, the itchiness and the fatigue where they wouldn't normally experience that at all. Hmm. And do allergies uh, affect people at different times in their life? I mean, could you be a, an adult and have never had allergies and then suddenly develop them? Absolutely. Uh, we've seen children have allergies at an early age and then grow out of them. We've seen adults, especially with what we do for a living, call us and say, I've never felt like this before, but I've got these symptoms. I've got a cough, a headache, really sore throat, and it's the time of year for allergies. And we're like, you quite possibly are allergic to something they're like but i've never been allergic to anything before it happens people do become allergic to at, at different stages in life and some will never experience it at all hmm. and and again like we said at this time of year there's such a heightened or this this time there's such a heightened concern about covid19 and people uh, being careful about that uh, any other advice for people that do have existing allergies uh, whether they're wearing masks or how they're dealing with this uh, well, what we would recommend is know what's in the air, um, check pollen levels in your local area, and then if you're allergic to that specific pollen type, then odds are you might be suffering from uh, an allergic reaction. If you're experiencing fever or something of that sort and, and major shortness of breath or a cough, those are symptoms of COVID-19, and fever is definitely not associated with those that suffer from allergies. So you might want to get yourself uh, checked out or, or at least talk to your doctor. All right. Good advice. Daniel Coates, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. Our pleasure. Daniel Coates is the director at Aerobiology Research Laboratories. So we wanted to talk about that today because we were hearing anecdotally as well in workplaces uh, for people who are still going to work and are deemed essential services and are in the office, not working from home, although even family members too, I'm sure.